You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. How are ya? This is Tommy's Outdoors 70. Yes, nice round number. And I am. I just want to thank you all for being with me for the past 70 episodes. And I hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as I did making them. Today's guest is well known to listeners to the podcast uh, from one of the previous episodes. He is Matt Cross. He is field sports journalist. And it was nice to catch up with Matt and talk about the variety of uh, subjects, including rewilding, the ethics of field sports, and the phasing out of lead shots and lead in general. But before I let you enjoy this episode of Tommy's Outdoors, I would ask you to go to YouTube and subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel. Needless to say, all episodes of the podcast are available there, and some of them are filmed, so you can see me and my guests talking. Not all of them, but some of them. But there's also a vlog and some gear reviews and a commentary. Uh, in general, all outdoors people will find there a lot of interesting material. So subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel. And now, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Cross. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tommy. It's nice to be back. Yes, like last time our our podcast was entirely dedicated to um, illegal killing of hen harriers and we haven't got into anything else. And on top of that, you were not featured in the title of the podcast. You know, like my, my titles outrageous, of the podcast. Outrageous, Tommy. Outrageous. Yeah, I know. But, you know, on, on my... On my defense, like the the titles of my podcast are following this pattern, you know, something something with and the name yeah. of my guest. So I didn't want to put like an illegal hen <laughs> harrier shooting with Matt Cross because that <laughs> that was impression, couldn't that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, but just maybe just to pick up where we left and and go from there. Has anything changed uh, since we last spoke with, with regards to? Uh, raptor persecution and and the whole whole messy situation that we were discussing last time. Okay, well, the, there has been one big change in Scotland, which has been the publication of a report called the Werity Report, um, which was looking at grouse moor management um, and looking at whether to license grouse moors, um, and that report was published just before Christmas, um, and it made a recommendation that um, basically grouse moors uh, now have, I think, five years um, to demonstrate an improvement in the conservation status of a range of birds of prey, including hen harriers. And if they don't do that within five years, then licensing will be introduced. So that has been the big, the big change in Scotland. Yeah, and am I correct in saying that that was a little bit surprise, surprising because the expectation was that the recommendation will be to introduce licensing flat out and and yet it was like given this five-year period before, you know, we kind of come back to the subject? Complete surprise, yes. I mean, as somebody who follows these things very closely, I think we were all expecting the recommendation that a licensing system be introduced. Um, and... 
this whole five-year probation-type period was a complete surprise for everybody. Apart from, obviously, the people who were on the, the committee, the rest of us were blindsided by it. Yeah. But would you overall, would you say this is like a good development? or or? Um, yeah, I think for grouse shooting, I think it's a, it's a very good development. I think grouse shooting can chalk that one up as a major success. There's no doubt about it. And it does, it does give people that chance to show that grouse shooting can live alongside birds of prey. So yes, I think it's a good thing. Um, listen, I, I actually should probably start with uh, asking you how, you know, obviously, if, especially for people who are going to be listening to this podcast, you know, in a few weeks or months time, uh, we are still in a, in a kind of lockdown situation uh, here due to the COVID thing. How yes. this how this is impacting field sports and and how you know do you see the impact? Did you expecting to to be a major impact or how? Yes, you know? yes, I think a, a, in the UK it will be a very significant impact. So at the moment, essentially all forms of field sport have have stopped. Okay, so there are some essential pest control activity carrying on um, because it's lambing time at the moment. So Foxes and crows have to be controlled during lambing, where you have, you know, problems with fox and crow predation. So that's carrying on. Um, shooting pigeons and um, corvids on cereals is carrying on because they can be very damaging to cereals at this time of year. But any kind of sporting activity, um, like deer stalking, for instance, and fishing, um, are, are completely stopped. Um, and I think we all anticipate a very significant disruption to the shooting season when it comes around in October um, because the, really there's a major sort of um, disruption to the, the flow of money through through the shooting uh, through shooting businesses at the moment because what's happening is a lot of people are unsure how much shooting there will be come October when the pheasant season starts so they're not paying deposits to shoots because those shoots aren't getting their deposits they're not buying birds um, which then is you know, knocking right on down through the supply chain. So there is, there will be an ongoing, very, very significant impact from this. Certainly the shoot that I'll spend, would normally spend a lot of time on in the winter is not going to shoot at all this year. Yeah, so this is interesting what you said that they're not buying birds. So uh, would you mind explaining that, uh, especially for, for listeners who don't know uh, how it works, and then for me as well. So sure. is it is it like the, the birds are being bought based on the number of bookings of the of people who are going to come, come back shooting? So they're not like birds who are actually there in the area. Okay, so there there are two models that you can you can adopt. Um, this is simplification, but essentially there are two models you can adopt if you want to run, a, say, a driven pheasant shoot. Okay, mm -hmm. the first would be a wild bird model, where what you do is you work with the population of birds that you have on your land, and you manage that population, and then you shoot the surplus on that population. Okay, that traditionally was the way nearly all shooting was done, but that has been completely replaced now with a release-based model, where what you do is essentially you buy in birds and then you can buy them as eggs, you can buy them as day-old chicks, or you can buy them, the typical thing now is to buy them as seven-week-old poults. Uh -huh. um, so you'd buy them in at seven weeks old, you'd initially put them into pens where they'd be fed and watered, and then you'd release them from those pens um, several weeks before the shooting season started, and then that's, that's the number of birds you have to shoot. Mm -hmm. And you choose the number of birds you're going to buy in, partly certainly based on your bookings, or if it's your own shoot, how many days you want to shoot yourself, um, but also based on the ability of your land to support that number of birds sustainably. Because obviously if you release, let's say, 10,000 birds, that has an impact, okay? And you have to have enough ground to be able to absorb that impact sustainably. So it's a question of the balance between the economic consideration of how many days you have booked or how many days you plan to shoot and the environmental consideration of the impact of those bird releases on your on the land you're shooting on. Yeah. And is it not the uh you know that model and the impact of the birds is it not the also a kind of subject of the ongoing discussion and um and many people being unhappy about that? 
that oh you yes, should you shouldn't be doing that because you're releasing those those pheasants and they have an impact on the environment and all all, all that what's your view on on, the, on on this and on the whole whole you know challenging that that model because that tightly relates to then kind of like a hunting pr problems that are going on i think everywhere yeah it certainly does and there is no doubt i don't think anybody would tell you that you can just release any number of birds without impact of course if you release if you put as i say say 10,000 mouths onto land that is going to have an impact they're going to eat vegetation they're going to eat insects you know they're going to have an impact there no doubt about it um now it's a question though of of balancing positive impacts against negative impacts because when you release those birds yes they're going to be eating they're going to be scratching there are problems with parasites and diseases as well um there's no doubt about that so there are negative impacts that arise from that but there are also positive impacts in the well from for me the most important positive impact is that it incentivizes people to retain good quality habitats yeah. because you know mm. if you've got a, a big sort of woody scrubby area on your farm and all you're doing is is farming sheep well you've no incentive to retain that Mm-hmm. You want to get rid of that, get some grass, get some more sheep on it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've got a shoot on there, then you can say, well, actually, that makes a great piece of pheasant cover. It makes a great pheasant drive. So we have an incentive to retain it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most important things about shooting is that it provides an incentive to retain high quality habitat. And it also puts a very skilled habitat management and predator management workforce into the countryside in the form of gamekeepers. Um, who are able to manipulate that habitat, suppress very abundant populations um, of of things like carrion crows and foxes, which we have a lot of in the UK, far higher densities those than um, European averages. So you've you've got to balance the negative impacts of putting thousands of hungry birds onto a piece of ground against the positive impact of maintaining habitats, managing them, you know, providing a skilled workforce that can can work with those habitats. Um, and with the predators on them so yeah it's not it's not straightforward at all you know and this is this is something i i think i mentioned that before that perhaps um that's that's uh where the where the problem lies that people are kind of uncomfortable with um that the fact of putting something artificially like in this case pheasant mm-hmm. kind of uh obscures the fact that then there's a uh, an, an enormous amount of actual natural habitat that is being protected and obviously then there is an always argument like yeah but this habitat is used by those you know invasive and non-native pesky pheasants rather than uh not you know native birds and and so on and so forth is is, is that, it that is. that's that's true but the question is would that habitat be there at all if it wasn't for the pheasant <laughs> yes you know because really what incentive is there to keep it people forget that that um you know land has to pay in the vast majority of cases it, it's somebody's asset and it's their source of income and, and it has to pay so you know, if you if you have a snipe shoot, for instance, then you have a you have a an incentive to retain boggy, tussocky land that is great for snipe and great for a whole lot of other things as well. Whereas if you didn't have that snipe shoot, then your incentive is to drain that land, turn it into grass and graze sheep and cattle on it. So, yes, whilst the 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 driver, the primary driver, might be the shooting and might be those non-native birds. Actually, there's a whole lot of other native wildlife that benefits off the back of those. Yeah, and it's, I think it's it's fair to say that uh, we, especially in the context of of UK or, or Scotland, that the landscape has changed so much that there is no actually no way of doing that in the other way, or maybe in a in a short term. Right, and and I can I can pivot here and I, into two subjects that I want to talk to you about. One one would be a rewilding, and the other one would be um, this you know shooting versus hunting um, kind of. I don't want to say debate, but something that is that is in my head a lot because you know I'm I. I began began approaching this kind of from the naive perspective, and I didn't know people, I didn't know, uh, you know, situation. I kind of like 
staring at it from the distance and 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 took a little bit of a of a naive approach. Oh, I don't know anything now. Now I know. Like I can't pretend anymore that I don't know people who are involved in all this and and campaigning. Um, but to me, like internally, I think that if it was called hunting, not shooting, that would be much much easier to swallow because you know you go on a hunt and you don't know what you're gonna shoot and you don't actually you know there's an unknown while when you're calling shooting like to me shooting is you know i take my target papers paper targets and and go on the range and i'm shooting and this is kind of like a like a mixture of two it's 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 shooting, but it's also hunting, but it's hunting with like a certainty because like you said, you're paying for birds or something like that. So then hardcore hunter will ask a question, is this really hunting? Actually, that's shooting. So the name is correct. And that's where you have the, uh, let's say, animal loving crowd coming in with the arguments, oh, it's it's inhumane, it's this and that and something else. Okay, well, the, the first thing is there is a peculiar quirk of language in the UK mm. about the term hunting. Yeah, please, please okay. explain, especially to me as a non-native speaker. So. <laughs> okay. So, it, particularly within the field sports community in the UK, mm. hunting refers specifically to hunting foxes with hounds. Mm. Okay? That's so if I was to turn around to uh, a friend, you know, who, who shoots or whatever, and I said, I'm going hunting this weekend, what they would understand that to mean is that I was going to go and chase foxes with hounds. Okay, not go and deer okay. shooting deer or anything like that. It's specific. No, wow. you see, because we wouldn't call that hunting. We would call that stalking. Uh-huh. So we we have a very odd set of language around this, which is completely out of sync with the rest of the world. Um, because an American would call what we do, you know, with pheasants, hunting. And in fact, the... I know quite well a chap who runs a company called Pheasant Hunting Scotland because he markets to Americans. Uh-huh. So he can't call it Pheasant Shooting Scotland. That's meaningless to Americans. Mm-hmm. He calls it Pheasant Hunting Scotland. But to the, the Scottish ear, that sounds very odd. Pheasant hunting just doesn't sound <laughs> right. So there is partly a sort of linguistic quirk here where hunting means one very specific activity, and that is hunting with hounds. Um. So that is part of the the issue here. I think where you could certainly debate whether hunting, sorry, see, I'm getting myself in the muddle now, aren't I? Whether pheasant shooting uh, and partridge shooting is hunting or not. It, it's an odd thing because, as you say, if you book a say a two hundred bird day, well, you can expect to shoot two hundred birds, and the only thing you need to do is shoot, okay? And you need to be good at the shooting, but you know, you can, that's what you need to do. You don't need to go and find those birds. You don't need to outsmart the birds. You don't need to understand the birds. You need to stand in your peg and shoot the birds. So I I would say, by the way, that on, on a pheasant shooting day, a lot of hunting goes on, but it's done by the beaters. Yeah. It's the beaters who are hunting, really, mm-hmm. because it's them that have to understand where the birds are going to be, how to work the birds, how to move the birds, how to, you know, all that stuff. The hunting on a shooting day is really done by beaters rather than guns. It's a little bit like you go on the, on the safari for trophy hunting. That's the tracker who does the hunting. And the actual client hunter is like, there, there, where, there, the elephant. Yes, boom, <laughs> right? A bit like that. But what I would say is do not underestimate the skill mm-hmm. involved in shooting driven pheasants. Mm, for sure. People have this idea that pheasants sort of lumber slowly over the horizon. And any fool with a gun can shoot them. No, that is not the case. There is very considerable skill Mm -hmm. in shooting fast, high-driven pheasants. Um, And if you ever watch people who are good at it, that's absolutely clear. There is very, very considerable skill in it. But to my mind, it's not a hunting skill. It's a shooting skill. Hence, it's Um, called shooting. So the name is correct. Yeah, absolutely. And if you contrast it to something like deer stalking, let's say that I went out to to shoot a deer tonight, mm-hmm. I would have, which I can't do because of lockdown, so I'm not <sighs> going to. But if I did, then I'd have to understand that deer. I'd need to know. I'd need to think right. Where is it going to be? How am I going to approach it? How am I not going to be detected? Mm-hmm. That that is hunting skill, okay, um, which is not part of of 
pheasant shooting, or certainly not part of driven pheasant or partridge shooting. So I, I wouldn't call it hunting. I, I like the term shooting to describe it, but I don't think that makes it any less of an activity. It just makes it a different. Point. Yes, yes, no, and and that's that's for sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm more of an aiming at the points that are being attacked repeatedly by the opponents and um do you do you feel like this is that there is a like a genuine um moral uh concerns or or is it like a like like business as usual and, and this is just a change in business model genuine moral concerns for who oh i mean for for the the old people who are against the 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 shooting because obviously it's it's no secret that both grouse shooting and pheasant shooting is a is a subject for uh constant pressure uh, essentially to eliminate it okay i i think there certainly are people who genuinely think that they are morally wrong activities there's no doubt about that and i think you know i wouldn't dismiss that at all i think there are people who've spent a great deal of time and effort thinking about these activities and have come to the conclusion they're morally wrong. Um, yes, they, they definitely exist. That is not all of the opponents of shooting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if it's most, um, but it is. there are certainly a significant number of people who genuinely and earnestly and in a well-reasoned way have come to the conclusion they are morally wrong. There are other people who... Um, may think that their consequences are harmful, don't have a form of the activity itself, but say the negative consequences mean that it should be banned. And there are other people for whom it is a way of pushing different political agendas. Yeah. Um, but there certainly are people, no doubt about it, who, who just think that shooting birds is wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and I respect that. You know, that that's the conclusion they've come to after serious moral consideration. Well, fair enough. Yeah. It's, it's it, you know, there's, this is really something that interests me a lot and i, I was i was I had many conversation on that because then at the end of the day it it comes to really wanting to uh, impose one's moral values on somebody else's right because there's like oh it's immoral because you shoot those birds like why it's immoral or oh, because you know you remove them from the habitat but these are introduced birds they're not there and you know but you shouldn't kill the sentient being right like yeah what about this burger that you just had and this, this is just a rabbit hole would you like a short moral philosophy class here yes please please okay. right okay so there, there are two this may get rather dull. Warn me if it does. There are essentially two approaches to moral decision-making. Okay, There are consequentialist approaches, which look at an action, and they look at the consequences of that action. And they say, the consequences make that right or wrong. Okay? So, should I smack my child? Okay? Well, what is the consequence of smacking my child going to be? If it's that my child grows up to be a good, you know, well-behaved human being, then that is the right action. If the consequence is they grow up to be a swaggering bully, then it's the wrong action. So that's one approach, is to look at the consequence of an action. The second approach is what's called the deontological approach, which says some actions are just right and some are just wrong. And that's all there is to it. The consequence is irrelevant. So that your, your deontologist would say either it's just wrong to smack children or no, it's fine to smack children. Now, how does this apply to your anti-shooting activist? Because I think there are essentially two types of anti-shooting activists. There are consequentialist anti-shooting activists who say the consequences of shooting are such that shooting is wrong and should not happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, And they would typically make environmental type arguments. Mm -hmm. There are other people who are deontological anti-shooting activists. And they say, no, killing animals is just wrong and you just shouldn't do it. Yeah. Okay? So you basically have two very different approaches mm -hmm to the to the issue which you do with it i mean that is very classic very basic moral philosophy you know to sort of crystallize it like that but that those are your two types of anti-shooting activists in my experience yeah um and your consequentialist activist actually that is somebody who you can you can kind of talk to and debate mm -hmm. with because you can discuss the consequences and you can make a case in terms of the consequences the person who says killing birds is just wrong well where do you go from that yeah. in terms of discussion I'm not saying that they are incorrect or that their argument's not valid, but it's a very difficult argument to engage with. Yes, exactly. Uh, and this is this is this is what I found. And 
Um, you know, my view on this is that the consequentialist approach is more mature. Uh, uh, this is just my, my you know, I, I, I hear about this uh, division first time from you right now. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more mature because it kind of takes the uh, responsibility for what is happening. And um, even in the previous episodes, uh, and, and for a long time, I'm, I'm extremely interested in, in wildlife conservation in Africa and trophy hunting and all that. And this is classic, classic example, right? That uh, you have all these arguments like, well, look, if you're not going to go and shoot, you know, buffalo or elephant or whatever you, you, you know, or, or, or hunter is willing to shoot, then the, the land will be gone, the animals will be gone, it'll all be Absolutely. gone, right? And this is... So like you're... You interviewed Adam Hart. I did. The excellent Adam Hart. I did. Now, Adam Hart is a classic consequentialist mm -hmm. in that he says, I don't really like people shooting these things, but I accept that the consequence of them shooting it is all this conservation that occurs, so therefore I support it. It's a classically consequentialist stance. Exactly. And, and, and you know, and this is like another thing that you said, that people who, who don't have this, this, this stance, it's very hard to argue because you you're kind of hitting like a like a brick wall it's like i don't want anything bad happen to an elephant that's it and it's yes, it's, it's short-sighted it's, it's short-sighted so it, it, it is short-sighted i i think so i think it is short-sighted and it's a very and as you say where do you go from that with these people who will just say you know um no no you must never you must never kill mm -hmm. animals yeah it's a, it's a, it's only after a while when they would find out like what do you what are you going to do now <laughs> right where are you go, what are you going to yeah. do where you go from there <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know what you you can love animals into extinction that mm -hmm. way. yes precisely and, and and that's not un, unheard of uh, statement like no. I, I i don't re even remember when i read this but someone said like i'd rather see those animals extinct than being you know hunted by these white assholes and something like that and you know i'm sitting and i'm sitting sure. like what what did you just said well, I, i'll give you another example a few well it must be a few weeks ago actually i wrote an essay for a rewilding charity they asked me to write an essay mm -hmm on rewilding and hunting and whether the two were incompatible. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I, these kind of land use debates and stuff that I participate a lot in. Um, and so I wrote an essay essentially saying, no, I don't think these things are incompatible at all. I think they are very compatible. Mm -hmm. And they, they had a lot of um, sort of comeback from that, from people saying, no, no, it's just, it's just morally unacceptable. Killing animals is just morally unacceptable. You know, if that's, it's just not a thing we can, we can contemplate. Yeah. You know, where do you go? Yeah, that's that's where that's you... it. And you're and you're very nicely. Uh, you're doing you're doing my job for me now here. Could you? I'm trying yeah, to help. Yeah, yeah, you do, you, know, you do, you're yeah. doing a great job because you nicely uh, change the, the like a, provide a segue or pivot into rewilding. And uh, yeah. I cannot not mention that you are an, an uh, author or godfather of widely successful Hampshire hyenas project. I remember I was sitting with my daughter in the in the airport, and uh, and and we were just going through Twitter, and I saw that, and I see like all the retweets and and likes and everything. It's like whoa, something is going on here. It's like people just jump on it. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you know what the most unexpected Twitter success? I think that was. <laughs> It was it was Sunday evening, and I was just sort of feeling vaguely sort of tetchy mm -hmm. and you know whimsical, and um, decided to put out this this silly tweet mm -hmm. saying something like I can't even remember what I said now that I was setting up the the Hampshire hyena project, um, and that I was to reintroduce hyenas to Hampshire mm -hmm. uh, to help control badgers, yeah. and that I was looking for committee members <laughs> who had no experience of Hampshire or hyenas. Yep. Um, which, to be honest, I thought might get sort of 15 chuckles on mm -hmm. people on, on Twitter mm -hmm. and ended up in the Times. It was so successful. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely bonkers. Thousands of likes, hundreds and hundreds of retweets on it. Yeah, it was very, it was, mm. yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. extraordinary. And, and to, to the, obviously that was, that was firmly mounted in the reality, right? It was firmly mounted in... In, in some of the rewilding attempts, because it, it's a little bit like a discussion that we had earlier about the consequentialist and, and the other group. What was it called, the other group again? 
the ontological, right? And this is a little bit like that. That there are people who are who have this, um, let's say, uh, pragmatic approach to rewilding and what mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. and what it should be, and then you have this group who is like completely, you know, like you have when you read this, you sometimes read about ideas of introducing bush elephant into north america uh, playing the north american plains for yeah. for to re for you know to replace the extinct uh, mastodons and you go like what the like who even <laughs> yeah i mean ham shaheen project actually was a, was a quite specific spoof oh, okay of of, of um I, I mean, obviously, it spoke to the way a lot of people felt in general about rewilding, mm -hmm. but it was a quite specific spoof of, of a project that somebody tried to launch to reintroduce links to Northumberland in the northeast of England. Oh, okay. Um, and, and it was quite specifically said, dig that up, because that's really the way they went about it was, well, we're going to bring links back and you're all just going to have to deal with it. And none of us actually live in Northumberland. None of us know anything about Northumberland. And none of us have got any academic background in Lynxes. <laughs> But we're going to bring back Lynxes to Northumberland. Oh, wow. um, yeah, oh, it was dreadfully badly handled. And I think a lot of passionate rewilders look at that specific project as a case study in how not to do it and will say that it has knocked back any chance of reintroducing Lynx by decade because it was so, it was so ter terribly badly handled. And they went through this dreadful series of meetings with farmers. Wow, so they, so that was oh okay, that's interesting. I didn't know I didn't know that, and probably most of the listeners uh, don't didn't hear about that either. Please. Well, so they they once reintroduced them to an area called Kielder in the in the Northumberland in the northeast of England, where there are very large areas of commercial forestry, but also very large sheep farms, mm -hmm. um, and they really just did it in the most appallingly arrogant, lazy fashion, <laughs> um, and the yeah. They, they had this sort of series of meetings with local sheep farmers where, um, you know, people raised concerns about lambs being predated by lynxes. Mm -hmm. And they said things like, well, you know, actually the much bigger problem is just, um, it is your husbandry. And actually, if you address the problems with your husbandry, you'd have far fewer lamb losses. Oh. Um, <laughs> went down like a bucket of cold sick yeah. with the farmers. Yeah. Um, so that it was that specific project really that sort of inspired the Hampshire Hyena project. Wow. Um, where, yeah, was was the, the Lynx Trust UK's attempt to reintroduce Lynx to, to Northumberland, which is now gone. I yeah. mean, the you know, DEFRA, who are the relevant government ministry, basically said this isn't going to happen. Oh, you know what? Now when you said it, I, I think I heard something about it. And there was some, some sort of a funding uh, for that project and then people who said that they're going to fund that kind of withdrew from that. Was that this thing? Yeah. Oh, and, I heard it, about it, yeah. And it all just sort of fell apart, really. But I didn't know they were so blatantly wrong. Like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have that background. Okay. I just heard that the but people... You know what's sad about it, I think, mm -hmm. right? really is that actually the more i think about it the more i read about it the more i come to the conclusion that the rewilding movement actually has some real insight mm -hmm. and it has some real value mm -hmm. if you can get past silly ideas like you know reintroducing lynxes on the bounds that on the grounds that if you're all just better looking after sheep it'd be fine if you can get past that kind of silliness yeah. there is actually some real insight in the rewilding movement um, and some real value to yeah. it um, well, I think it's kind of sad, actually, that it's become, you know, it's become tie synonymous in the public imagination with these top-down, um, we're going to come and rewild you type of process. Yes, and, uh, and I said it a few times already on the podcast that I, I was surprised uh, at first to learn that rewilding is a controversial word even this controversial term because even on this podcast you were saying about uh pheasant release and you say like, oh there is a there is a rough patch of the land that is great habitat mm -hmm. and now there is an incentive for farmer to keep it if they release a pheasant and so on like that is a rewilding that is kind of like uh keep 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 wilding let's say isn't it right yes. that's exactly it yeah 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 there is there, there is, and there is definitely, and there is definitely an ability for a natural affinity there. Mm -hmm. Definitely, um, the, the problem is though these things get lost in a whole series of wider debates mm -hmm. and kind of tribal loyalties, almost. True. Um, 
you know, and that's that's where it gets obscured, um, which is a real shame because there is there is valuable insight in in the rewilding um, sort of approach mm-hmm. uh, and the ecosystem regeneration approach to conservation has real insight and actually is not naturally, I would say, um, antithetical to shooting and to hunting. Yeah. I, I think there's a natural symbiosis there, yeah. which has got lost. Oh, no, no, no doubt. I, I have no doubt. And, you know, here, here's an interesting thing that, that I observe, that when I talk to hunters or, or, or field sports people like, like yourself, but also here in Ireland uh, with, with, with many in, you know, members of the deer hunting organizations, they are fundamentally not against rewilding and and this is kind of in line with what what my kind of hunch will will tell me that actually hunter would like to go into you know wilderness and have an opportunity to Absolutely. meet not necessarily should but to meet different animals and boar and lynx and wolf and bear and all sorts of things uh, they're not against. They're not against that. But but then they're kind of like a like you mentioned in a, in a tribal way pitted against uh, you know let's let's call them animal. I call them animal loving crowd, right? But this is this is uh, not accurate uh, term. But let's say people who are not so keen on shooting and hunting, and they both kind of like they feel the need to be against each other. They have to. They have to disagree, and then everything falls apart. I, absolutely, I, and there is a strong kind of tribal sense to this. It's like which gang are you yes. in? Are you in the shooting gang or the rewilding gang? You know, and it, and there are polarizing figures in both of those camps who try and maintain that. You know, so uh, yeah, absolutely. There, there. That is a, a serious issue. But the two are not natural enemies i agree with you shooting culture puts a very high premium on wildness you know and the idea of the wild is a very strong and important draw um for a lot of people who are involved in shooting so i mean you know put it this way tommy do you know anybody who would rather shoot a tame deer in a park than a wild deer in a forest no i don't No, definitely no because wildness is a desirable quality Exactly. Even if you um, see the like on the YouTube the video of, of of deer being called in a in a park, and that you have a comments from hunters like, "Oh, it's bad to shoot the bull in yeah. a in a park. You don't shoot the deer in the park, and whatever." Like, because that's exactly what you do. Uh, what what you what you're saying that the hunters are are value. This is why we do this, right? This is why we do to to contact with nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. Yes, the problem, I think the problem arises partly because there's this idea that one thing is excluding the yeah. other. So in Scotland, it's like, well, we want to rewild the grouse moors, mm-hmm. you know, and then people who love grouse moors and care about grouse shooting are saying, well, so you want to get rid of our grouse moors, do you? And you end up with this sort of tribal clash, yes. which people can't get past because it's like, well, you're stopping us from rewilding. Yeah, but you're trying to stop us from grouse shooting. And actually, there's plenty of space for everybody to do their thing. Um, we just need to be more imaginative, more creative about how we think about land. Um, and there's plenty of space for all of us. There's no doubt about that. And the other thing I would say is that actually the, the rewilding projects that have got off the ground in Scotland, so there are a, a really large-scale rewilding projects in the Highlands um, at places like Glenfeshie. Um, Glenfeshie... Glenfeshie shot a tremendous number of deer to get their rewilding project off the ground. A tremendous number. I, I don't know, thousands, certainly, of deer were shot in Glenfeshie um, to get that rewilding project off the ground. So rewilding isn't going to happen without people with guns. Yes. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, so, you know, unless we can all find a way to get along, well, rewilding is not going to happen yeah and this is this is interesting like do you how do you see this play out do you think that finally there there's there's there will be some some middle ground because you know like even i see myself that you know i'm trying even in this podcast uh talked with people from from let's say various ends of the spectrum and sometimes I feel like, you know, all I'm achieving is that, uh, you know, on both ends, people are like, like, well, you know, 
decide, Tommy, what side you're in, Tommy, right? Are you for this? I was like, no, I'm actually not on, on either side. I'm just trying to... And it's it's hard. So do you see... How do you see this played out in the future? I, I don't know. It, it's really interesting to see. I, I don't know who will win or if we'll all compromise and meet somewhere in the middle or what will happen. Um, rewilding is a very vigorous movement at the moment. Um, you know, and it is, it's capturing a lot of attention, a lot of public imagination. Um, and I think there is a lot of sound insight within yeah. it. So it's going somewhere. Um, but shooting retains a very powerful position in British society and in British land management. And I don't think it's going to cease to exist. Yeah. yeah. Um, my money is that there will be large scale rewilding projects. But there will also continue to be large-scale shooting in the UK. And I think that actually there will be some exchange of ideas between the two. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hopefully. Uh, and, yeah, th there will be some kind of, you know, we, we will get rewilded shoots. Mm -hmm. um, we've used that kind of ecosystem restoration insight and the idea of, of minimal or no um, land management intervention um, as part of their model, yeah. so I think actually there there will be a transfer of ideas and and knowledge between those two sectors, but they will both continue to exist. Yeah. One is not going to displace yeah. the other. And my and my always my my view is like that: all the hunters and and people involved in in hunting or shooting, uh, to use the terminology, uh, should actually this is this is what I kind of advocate: should actively engage with the the rewilding people if not for any other reason is like if those big projects will go ahead then uh, potential you know resources natural resources those those hunters risking being locked out of those resources and then management that will be inevitably required uh, will again gonna end up with uh, hiring sharpshooters or anything like that rather than relying on the recreational hunters who who can uh, absolutely I think I think yeah we'd be smart to engage. There's no doubt about that. We'd be wise to engage with those projects now um, and get an understanding of them and build relationships and all of that stuff because they're not going anywhere. Yeah. Those are going to be part of our landscape and that movement is going to be part of the way people are thinking about ecology and think about the environment for a long time. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean bears and wolves and lynxes and all that stuff, but what it does mean is that kind of ecosystem restoration approach that says, actually, maybe we can serve better by doing less. Yes. Rather than constantly having management interventions, maybe what we need to do is step away and do less. Um, you know, that is that is going to become a significant part of the way people think about um, conservation and land use and land non-management, as it were. Um, in the UK and in Scotland, and we need to engage with that. No, no doubt about cool. it. Cool. Listen, Matt, I know that you're stuck for time, so just one last thing that I that I quickly want to touch uh, on with you, and this is uh, phasing out lead shots and shooting uh, lead in shooting, and and probably further yep. down in in fishing as well. Um, yeah. What's your what's your comments on on the on the initiative? Because on one end there is initiative going on and struggle in the EU where uh, a commission is trying to ban lead or put it on the on the on the list restricted uh, list uh, most of the hunt as far as i'm concerned most of the hunting organizations from across the europe are opposing that um, then in the uk uh, shooting organization done something that i thought was is kind of smart because they come up with this plan of voluntary phase out of uh, of of lead yeah. shots which which i i actually was surprising especially to many many people who are fighting that ban in the in the uh, eu but at the same time i think it's it's kind of smart move so what was the uh, reception of that on on the ground um it, it was very mixed mm -hmm. so there are some people who who think that shooting organizations have just done the most terrible, unspeakable, dreadful mm -hmm. thing um, by by saying they'd like to see lead go over the next five mm -hmm. years um, and are really, really angry about it. And certainly BASC, the British Association of Shooting and Conservation, who are the biggest shooting organization in the UK, they took a lot of flack from members over mm -hmm. that. 
there were a lot of very unhappy yeah. members. But there were also a lot of people who said, good, good. We needed some leadership on this. We needed to push on this. It's very clear. This is my stance. I will not, not you know, have any pretense about this. This is my stance. We needed some leadership on this. We needed to take a, get on the front foot on an issue, okay? And to be able to say, no, we're dealing with this because lead contamination from shot is an environmental problem. People are going to try and tell you it's not. It is. There's very clear evidence in this. There's strong scientific evidence about lead poisoning of birds from lead shot. So we needed to get on the front foot on this. And I think it was exactly the right thing to do was to kind of take a lead and say, well, we're going to voluntarily phase this out over five years. That's completely sensible. It's not a ban. Yeah. It's a voluntary phase out. And and that's that's absolutely the right thing to do. Because, you know, there are people who love to shoot with old-fashioned guns mm-hmm. that can only shoot lead. Yeah. Okay? Well, they can carry on as long as the rest of us who shoot with modern guns that can shoot steel move over to shooting exactly. steel. Exactly. let those people... Exactly. Let those people who can only shoot lead shoot lead. Because the alternative is that in five or ten years' time, Lead will just be banned. It'll be flat banned. And then nobody can shoot lead. And people will be saying, well, what do I do with my granddad's old hammer gun now? Well, scrap it or hang it on the wall because you certainly ain't going to shoot yeah. it. This is a very, very sensible move, in my opinion, that actually puts shooting into a much stronger position yeah. um, in the long term. I, but has not been universally popular. I think that the the other thing is that giving giving ourselves or 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 shooting community this uh lead time that also allows to mount um enough well maybe pressure or maybe demand uh that will be heard by uh ammunition manufacturers because to me the fact is that if we have um as good as uh, equivalents for for lead shots then there will be much less of the conversation. There are certain cases right now in this moment where lead shot, you know, it's not can be replaced by by uh, steel or tungsten or anything else. But you know, um, that will change. I am sure that will change because, especially when there's going to be demand and and the pressure on the manufacturers, they they keep you know developing and doing this stuff all the time anyway. So surely they start developing. Um, more of a uh, replacements or or equivalents of a of a lead uh, ammunition that then could be used for for uh, high high pheasant shooting uh, or you know will address the problems with the ricochet and and stuff like that. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and it needed that push to focus minds on that issue. I don't believe that these guys cannot do this. I, you know, I, I don't believe that cartridge manufacturers cannot manufacture cartridges which fire steel and are just as good. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, they will, they will find ways to do it, but they needed that push to focus minds on doing it, no doubt about it. And that's what these shooting organizations have done. You know, it is they've given it that push. And frankly, they've decided not to defend something which was indefensible. Now, that's just good strategy. You don't defend things that are indefensible. That's just a waste of effort. It's a waste of resources. You know, and Basque and Countryside Alliance and um, National Gamekeepers Organization and whoever else could have spent the next 10 years fighting, fighting, fighting to keep lead shot, and they would have lost it anyway. You know, I think okay. I think that the, that the fight really, um, like in my head, uh, where, where I would place that fight, that fight goes not so much for stop using lead, but don't ban it completely uh because you sure. know i i'm fundamentally for for freedoms and if if like you said somebody have a gun like a hammer gun for his grandfather was using or some other thing like well yeah go ahead and and go and shoot the dog with a with a lead shot the problem is when you have you know thousands of people shooting lead shots over one body of water for like you know last 50 years that's a lot of damn lead in that body of water Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, I completely agree with you, Tommy, that we need to be responsible as a community. We need to be responsible. Um, and that means that where we can stop, we should stop. And if people can't, then they can't. And I understand that. So, for example, you, there was an issue about very small bore shotguns. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. 
four tens and the like, they're for whatever technical reason, it's very difficult to provide non-lead ammunition for mm-hmm. those. Okay. Fair enough. So let's keep shooting lead through those for the moment. Yeah. Okay. Um if we stop shooting it through our twelve bores that can move to non-lead ammunition. That's that is a that is a reasonable, sensible, responsible, pragmatic approach to the issue. It's not reasonable or sensible or pragmatic to just say, well, we're all just gonna carry and shoot. Yeah, one. yeah. No, that's not sensible. But it is sensible to say, let's try and reduce it as far as we can so that those people who have to carry on using it are able to do so and have the minimum of possible environmental impact. Okay, uh, Matt, listen, I think we're going to be wrapping this up. Um, thanks thanks again for, for your time and coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I think that, uh, I hope that a lot of... Uh, uh listeners on both ends of the spectrum uh will kind of um don't be so tribal about it and more focus of the like in the in the top of the conversation more focus on the outcome uh that is to be achieved rather than on the you know here and there and there's them and us mentality because yeah. that is really really not getting us anywhere in the long run yeah that's what we need isn't it we need yeah to move away from the kind of them and us mentality as you say and to look at what outcomes are we trying to produce and what do we have in common um in terms of trying to produce those outcomes yeah uh matt thanks a lot it's been a pleasure thank you Tommy. nice speaking to you You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.